So we start a series, and it ties in really well with resurrection, on the beauty of the spirit life. And I don't know if what I'm sharing this morning is an overview, but I guess it's a, we'll call it an entree or a, maybe an appetizer. I don't know. We, we're gonna, it's a foray into this series. Um, but I want to stop. If you're married or you know, in this place, I want you to close your eyes and think about what was the first thing that drew you to your spouse? What was the very first thing? Just take a minute and think about it. Anybody has something ridiculous, you can you can yell it out. If not, you shouldn't. <laughs> um, I can tell you, I've done uh, twenty. I've done I don't know. I, can't, I lost count with the number of weddings I've done over the years. And one of the things that I've always tried to do with weddings is that I do premarital counseling. Not just not because the Bible told me so, but just because it doesn't. But but just I want to help. I want to help people when they're entering into marriage to enter into this covenant in a recognition of how holy and pure and important it is. And one of the questions that I ask, nice move, Dave. Um, uh, one of the questions that I ask <laughs> every, every, uh, every time that we do uh, premarital counseling is what drew you to that person? And I would say 75% of the time, you know, somebody says something about their physical appearance because it's like the, it's the first thing you see. Now, I'll have to tell you, for me, I'll tell you the first thing, then I'll tell you the real first thing. When uh, Andrew and I were in church, she was new to the church I was an OG at, and so I hadn't, I hadn't seen her yet. And um, she, you know, we had this night... And um, it was a night where we were talking about sexuality in the youth group. And I made some joke, and she laughed at my joke from the row, like, in front of me, but catty cornered to me. So that was the first thing, is that somebody laughed at my joke. And then we started, I was, saw, I was like, oh, my goodness, there's this beautiful girl I've never seen here before. And so we had service, and I've told a little bit of this story before, but we went outside after youth group. Actually, my dad will be quick to tell you, he saw us looking at each other in this first like sort of conversational moment. And he was like, I knew there was something different. He told my mom that night to his credit. And, but what I noticed in that moment, as I began to talk with her, I'm going to brag on my wife for a moment, is I, I noticed she has these green, beautiful, large eyes that felt like there's a universe of wonder in those eyes. And I just I just sat there like talking, but like, you know, a little lost in the eyes. And but but beauty's all around us, right? And beauty compels us far more than we give it credit for. And so I want to I want to we're going to talk about the beauty of the spirit life, but I, I feel like I need to back up. We started this year talking about beauty, but I feel like I need to back up and talk about beauty and its importance for a minute. 
Um, Psalm, we started here in Psalm 27, 4. It says, one thing I've asked from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. It's a really interesting prayer because David, um, who would have written his own copy of the Torah and memorized it, would have known Moses, who the Bible says he knew him face to face, says he cannot see his face. So it's an interesting prayer to pray. But David, who had everything life could offer you at that time, had one desire, and that was to gaze upon the beauty. And what does that even mean, like the beauty of God? Um, what, what makes beauty unique, like from other ways that we could imagine God? Like um, sometimes when we imagine or when we think about what truth means, we relegate truth to simply fact. But I actually think that beauty is an aspect of what truth is. It's, it's like truth is a bigger thing than simply fact. Um, beauty, I would say, is something you can see or experience. Like, right? Like, how many of you have ever seen a beautiful place in nature? But how many of you have ever gotten out of a movie or you, saw, you heard some piece of music and you thought, that was beautiful? It's like beauty is something you see or experience. I'll tell you another funny story about Andrea is it was in college that she took me out for my birthday and we went to Chewy's to eat and after it was my birthday and we kind of casual hang and it was just like kind of like a lame night like I like be honest like I was like oh this was she she will completely take all this when you see where this story is going and I was like um, we, we were just, you know, having conversation and it was kind of like an afterthought. And so I was, we were, we had this, we got into an argument, we had this real long conversation and I was like, I just, it doesn't feel like, like your mind is even focused on me. You, I was like, if you don't care, you should, you should break up with me. So on my birthday, she agreed to that deal. She was like, you know what? You know what? I have kind of lost focus and yeah, maybe we, maybe we need to move on. And so that night, I cried an ocean of tears. And <laughs> it is the worst birthday ever. It was so bad that my, my best friend from childhood drove an hour to come just sit in the dorm room with me. And I mean, like, I don't know, you get to the point where you've cried so much that your body is still crying, but no fluid is coming out of your, of your eyes. And so I, I, uh, I, I cried a lot. And next day, I went and, and, and found her and, 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 and begged. I was like, listen, I just, I just feel like I want to be with you for the rest of my life. And so we had this conversation, and she took me back. After one day, it felt very real. Best birthday ever. That's right. Best day after birthday ever. Um, here was a funny thing. My parents had planned a vacation, which they had invited Andrea on. And occasionally she had went on vacation with us and would stay with my sister. And we were going to go to Hawaii to go to the beach. And they were like a little nervous about taking her on this vacation with all that was just happened. It was a month away. And so they were like, maybe we need to take Travis, Jordan's friend. 
We ended, they ended up deciding for Andrea to go. And we're out on this, we're out in this, in the ocean one day, and we're kayaking. And there's whales in the season. And I was really hoping to see a whale close. And we were out, and this humpback whale, we'd seen him from far off, but this humpback whale comes with a little calf, comes and emerges at the surface like 20 feet, 15, 20 feet away from us. And I've seen him from a boat, but in a kayak, it's like <laughs> your whole body just like, it's like time and eternity stops for a moment. And you're just sitting there. And I had goggles with me. And I was like, I'm jumping in. I'm about to go see. Like, this is the most beautiful moment. I'm about to jump in and see this thing underwater right now. I'm going to see a, a, a mama calf and her mama whale and her calf like swimming underwater. It's, gonna, it's like, I, it's probably one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. And Andrea's like, you are not getting out of this boat. And I mean, we are full-blown no, I'm getting out of this boat. I don't know how many five or six back and forth this went, but I was like, like I as a kid wanted to be a marine biologist, and so like I'm in this moment, I'm like, okay, if you hadn't have broke up with me one month before, <laughs> I'm like feeling a little on edge here about the whole relationship. So the beauty on the kayak beat the beauty underneath the kayak, and I didn't get out, and I, I don't let her live it down to this day. It's the one thing I hold over to her openly. But it was this incredible experience of like, you can't even imagine, like the feeling of just seeing something right there was just so beautiful. Uh, how many of you ever stood and looked at the stars and you thought, wow, they're beautiful. We were in the country on the church camp out a few weeks ago and all of us were looking up at the stars. One of the things you realize when you get outside the city is the light that humanity creates drowns out oftentimes the light that God creates. That's a whole sermon that we won't preach this morning. But, but it's just this incredible like wonder that when you look up at the stars, I remember backpacking, or we didn't backpack, we went camping, but I took Grace out to Big Ben. How many of you have ever been to Big Ben? Anybody made the drive? It's a really long drive, but it is so far away from anything we saw these stars, and I'm sitting here, she's eight years old, we're looking at the stars, and it was just incredible beauty again. And she, like, went into the car, we were camping near the car, and she went into the car and grabbed something, and she jumped out, and she goes, the stars at night are big and bright. <laughs> there you go. You finish it up for me. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Incredible like, I mean, you know, like, as a father, I'm looking at the stars. I've got my eight-year-old here, like, looking at the stars with me. I'm like, it's a moment of incredible beauty. You get what I'm saying? Beauty is an underestimated thing. I, w I want you to, I want to read to you from Psalm 119. This talks about nature. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Like, you know, Tolkien can't write better than this. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is a 
it is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the others. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Beautiful. Look at verse 3 and 4. I want you to see this. It says, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes in, out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And sometimes, some people believe that all there is to know about God or life fits in the realm of facts or ideas. That somehow what is, what is fact is synonymous with what is true. I love the way John in Revelation 4 describes heaven. In John 4, we have John, it says that there was a door that was opened, just imagine this, to the heavens. And the Spirit, the, there's a voice calling to him saying, come up here and let me see and listen to what John sees. He says, after this I looked and there was before me a door standing open in heaven and at once I was in the spirit and before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone, that shone like emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne set seven lamps that were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And in, also in the front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, like, Revelation doesn't answer all of the technical questions we would love to answer about the afterlife and about heaven and new heavens and new earth and how it all works out and when Jesus is going to return. It doesn't answer every fact we might need to know. But what it does is it creates for us this picture of incredible beauty that we have to imagine and to look forward to. Like the Bible is not just a set of facts for you to adopt and adhere to. It is full of, of story. It's full of mystery. It's full of prophecy. It's full of symbols. It's full of poetry. I mean, there are commands and there are simple statements of fact as well. But the former of beauty far outweighs the latter in volume of writing by very, very significant margin. And I love as many... Um, how, how many of you have read the Bible Project? Or you've been through the Bible Project videos? The Bible Project does an incredible job of picturing the Bible as a cohesive story because even the Scripture themselves is a story with a beginning, a middle, and the end. And even the gospel itself, what Jesus came, what we celebrated this last week, is not, cannot be reduced to a set of facts. 
It cannot be reduced to your forgiveness. You miss whole parts. It cannot be reduced to you going to heaven or you miss. They're, 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 it's a story. In Acts 2, as the Spirit is poured out and Peter begins to preach, the, he tells like the story of David. He tells about the prophecy of Joel. He tells about the story of Jesus and he talks about how Jesus is Messiah and he waits for them to respond to the beauty of how Jesus fits into the middle of this cosmic story. Like there's a beauty there that's being presented and the Spirit is wooing people. All right. I'm going to pause talking about that. I'm going to have us all stand. And we're going to do something in the middle of service. We, we sometimes do in liturgy, but doing it in the middle of service, I want to have us recite the Apostles' Creed. And I'll give you some reasons afterwards. The Apostles' Creed is, is the oldest most the the pieces of the Apostles' Creed are traced back to to 140 A.D. early second century and fully like in manuscript I think in the in the fourth century, and so we're going to recite this together. I believe we have we good to go. We have it. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us lead us and then we're gonna read it and we can sit back down. Say this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. In case you're wondering about what our beliefs are, this is, this is what's on our belief page. Now, I grew up in, I grew up in uh, the Assemblies of God, and I'm going to pick on my heritage for a moment, but I could do this with any, but I get to pick on my own. We, we, we uh, grew up with what are called the 16 Fundamental Truths. How many of you here have remember or have heard of the 16 Fundamental I know there's a few of us here who've got them. And it's actually very interesting because most of the 16 fundamental truths um, are things I still mo mostly believe in. There are some things that, that I changed a little bit on, but they're, they're mostly still belief. But the interesting thing is they are just, they are bulleted points of belief, like abstracted in, in sort of statements of fact. The, the creed that the church start with confesses in the midst of a story. Like even the Apostles' Creed, which is meant to ground the faith into some sort of cohesive theology and doctrine, isn't just a statement 
of different facts about what we believe, it actually starts with the Creator God. It tells the story of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit and ends with life everlasting. Because we aren't just confessing a set of facts about God and metaphysical truths. We are confessing Christians because we believe that God is telling an incredible story with creation, with humanity, that He sent His Son Jesus, and that we fit in the midst of that story. We aren't just confessing facts. We are confessing a story of incredible beauty and truth beyond comprehension. Are you with me? So there's, there's story, there's prophecies, there's poetry, there's symbol, all of these things. One of my favorite sermons I got to preach in the last uh, couple years was, was preaching on how the, the bronze cross is raised up with the serpents in the wilderness. And you have these, serp, these serpents that are, they are um, causing affliction and sickness in the middle of Israel. And Israel is supposed to look upon this cross, and as they look upon that which afflicts them, they, they are healed. And so, this happens far before Jesus. As Jesus is raised up on a cross, man is looking upon that We've made Him sin. That which afflicts us. We're looking upon Him as sin. And receiving His healing. Like the cross was, it's not, just hear me, it's not just a symbol, but it is a symbol. Like we start in the garden in the tree of life and Jesus is raised up on a tree. We have a cross that heals Israel. It goes back to that. The, the cross also for the Roman Empire the reason, they could have just tortured you and killed you anywhere, but the reason they put you up on a tree, upon a cross like that, for everyone to see, is because it was a symbol of empirical dominance. I'm, tr I'm trying to, to point out that these elements of the story aren't arbitrary. There's incredible beauty and depth and truth behind them. And, and in our age, it's hard for us to even see this, but we live in an age over the last couple hundred years that idolizes fact as ultimate reality. We idolize what we can define and measure as ultimate reality and truth. Um, there's a uh, I encourage a couple of people in our church to read this book. There's this book called uh, Secu The Secular Age. It's written by this guy named Charles Taylor and he's describing the age that we live in. That when he says it's a secular age, he means that it's an age where we have options. Like if you're a Christian, how many of you grew up a Christian? I know there's some here who didn't. But you, how many of you grew up with an awareness that there were not Christians somewhere? Even if even if they weren't around you, raise your hand if you grew up the fact that there was... So like, that would have been unique from 500 years ago. You would not have even had the thought that there might not be somebody who believed in God in certain parts of the world. And so we grew up in a realm of options and we grew up in a realm of facts where 
the spiritual world has been disassociated with what is reality. And so the way that, that Charles Taylor describes this is he describes this as what he calls the buffered self. Like a spiritually aware person he describes as a porous self. How many of you ever like played with a sponge? A sponge is porous. When you put it in water, what happens? It just absorbs it. But, but we, because we have elevated some things as truth above all else, we miss experiences of beauty in the Scripture and in life and in prayer that are all around us. There's incredible beauty in the story and in life that because we, have, we exist in this sort of buffered way, we miss the truth of God because we've relegated Him to something we can define or factually confess. Are you with me? I'm trying to expand our hearts and minds on what truth is. It is more than just fact. So, and, and when we experience poetry and story and scripture and symbol, we experience the beauty, the visual, the experiential part of God that isn't just easily sayable. So I'm going to give you, I would give all that to say, I'm going to be quick. I'm going to give you um, a number of pictures or symbols that are associated with the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to play with them for, for a minute. But the, the biblical symbols, um, some of them are like, you have like dove, fire, wind, water, oil. Sounds like I'm Captain Planet here. Um, but you have, <laughs> you have a number of, of, of symbols here. And these symbols, they are visual symbols because they're helping you, they're helping our hearts and minds to imagine and comprehend something that is beyond words. Are you with me so far? So first one I want to talk about, my, one of my favorites, that, that's, that's a, a, a picture of the Spirit, is breath. Have you ever heard the word ruach in in Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That Hebrew word I just mentioned, that's the word here for breath. It's also the word for spirit. And so the breath of God is often, this, this, the breath and spirit, you see these things overlapping in the story. And I love this moment in Genesis because this is, I journaled this recently and this just gets me excited. But I was, when he forms him out of dust, you have to think that dust is what like, you know, you think about like tr trees and flowers and like animals, you know, all the things. Dust is what everything ends at. Is what it, it's finally when the when the when the creatures and the living things in the universe have finally decomposed into their final state, they're dust. The spirit, John 4, when Jesus is talking with the woman of the well, he's talking about worshipers, worshiping in spirit and truth. He says, Spirit, God is spirit. And so dust, I want you to think about this. Dust is like the basic 
if you could think of like the atomic, down to the atomic level, dust is like the base matter of the cosmos. And spirit, so dust is the substance of the universe, but spirit is the substance of God. Like you, as a man, as a woman, have been made by the atomic substrate of the universe, the substance of everything that has life, but you also are the substance of God Himself. Like the breath of God is in you. You are not just dust, you are breath. Look at what Jesus says in John 20, 21 to the disciples. He says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. This is before he's ascended. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Can you imagine Jesus coming up to you and breathing on you? And these good Hebrew boys, they know what that means. The Father giving them the very substance of God. You know what COVID does is it attacks the lungs. It attacks our breathing. Now, I've I've seen Andrea's grandmother and I've seen my own grandfather breathe their last breath. And there's something very real about watching somebody breathe their last breath. Now, I also was in the hospital room when my daughter, my first daughter, came, came out of the womb. All of them. I was in for all of them. <laughs> the first one impacts you. And that baby is, is in there being fed on an umbilical cord by the mom's body. But when it comes out of the womb, it begins to breathe. Like breath of God is at the essence of life. Here's another picture, symbol. Fire. Acts 2, 1 through 4 says, When the day of the Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Matthew 3.11 goes on with this picture of fire. It says, I baptize you with water and repentance. This is John speaking, John the Baptist. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the second like symbol. Like When we think about the Spirit, the Bible gives us this fire. So I, I like doing barbecue. And I don't do barbecue just anyway. I want to use the stick burner. Like I don't, I don't use a charcoal or, you know, a Traeger, push a button and it smokes the thing, whatever. Um, there's a, 
I like to actually, like, I love building a fire. And so I like to actually build the, the fire, you know, do, like, I use logs. I build the fire. And every time I do this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to cook a brisket. And then when I wake up at three in the morning, because it is so much work to do it this way, I will confess. It means I don't eat enough barbecue. But it's so much work to do it this way. I wake up at three in the morning, and for the first 30 minutes, I hate life. I'm like, what am I doing up at three in the morning? I need one of those push-button Traegers. <laughs> and I sit there, and by the time I get the fire rolling, and it's still dark, and I'm looking at the fire, and I'm seeing it, like, I'm there. And I'm like, oh, man, this is the best, this is the best moment. So, like, you know, ups and downs of barbecuing. And the reason that you cook in an offset smoker with sticks is that in a perfect fire, I think this is, think this is the chemical process is correct, a perfect fire, which doesn't exist anywhere in the universe, if you had a perfect flame burning at like infinite heat, it would produce only oxygen and CO2. And so when you cook like, when you have like a Traeger smoke and pellets, there are lots of chemicals that are put in there. But whenever you're burning on wood, you burn at a higher temperature, and so it produces a more pure smoke. This is, this is why, like, if you go to, like, Franklin's in Austin or if you go to the best barbecue places, they all are cooking on wood because it's an offset smoker. They burn that thing really hot, like 1,800 degrees, and it produces a very, very clean smoke that produces a very, very beautiful flavor because you're burning at this, like, intense level of heat. And Leviticus tells us that when the offering is laid on to the altar of the fire of the Lord, that it produces a soothing, pleasing aroma to God. Like the thing about God's fire when He cooks in our lives is that the aroma is always perfect. Like God cooks and is perfect. His fire burning in us creates perfect aroma. Not only does it create an aroma, but His fire purifies. When it says He will baptize us with, with, with the Spirit and with fire, like how many of you know that fire purifies? Like the Israelites would take that which they had gotten from other nations and they would throw it into the fire and it would burn down all the wood and it would burn all the idols into base gold and silver and all that would be left would be something that was absolutely pure. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. When, when the Spirit of God comes on you in fire, like, it, it purifies you. You know what else fire does? Fire allows people to see. I'm, I'm saying all these things because symbols, they don't work in one-dimensional ways. They work like diamonds where there's light refracting out of many angles. All right, does that make sense? So, like, fire doesn't just purify. It doesn't just produce aroma. It also allows people to see. How many of you are fans of Lord of the Rings? In, in Return of the King, there's this moment, this is a little bit different in the book, Tolkien writes, but in Return of the King, there's this incredible moment where Gondor is being besieged by 
the evil armies of Mordor. And my 10% nerddom is coming out in this moment. And, and um, there's, there's no king of Gondor on the throne. There's, there's a steward there, and he's pretty much given up. And so Pippin, this hobbit, goes and lights this thing called the Beacon of Gondor. How many of you remember this moment in the story? And the Beacon of Gondor is to alert Rohan, the other empire of men, that they need help. And so you see in this picture, this fire gets lit. And across this valley, there's a mountaintop, if you can imagine. And another fire, another tender of the fire who sees that fire gets lit, lights his fire. And then you go across to another mountaintop and another guy's like, the fire is lit. I'm lighting that fire. And then you go across valley and river. In the book, I think there are seven actual um, beacons. And it finally reaches Rohan. And this is, this is such a cool part of the story. Like, if I cry telling a Return of the King story, like, I just can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> Um, the, the king, Theoden, of Rohan is there, and they're debating about whether they should go to war, and he's like, this is not our war. But this backstory of this is that he had been controlled, he had been demonized, essentially, controlled by a magician to do evil works and to not do the right good and beautiful things. And Gandalf comes in with the wizard staff and like, you know, he like delivers him. It's like straight up demonic being cast out in a movie in Hollywood. But anyway, he, uh, he's, he's, he gets him free of this evil thing. And this king who's been under, under an illusion of magic for years upon years is standing there just having woken up, debating war, and a fire is lit on a mountaintop that says, we need your help. And years of his identity robbed from him as he, is, as he is, comes out of this darkness of the spell. There's a fire that says, you are t- it's time for you to be a king. It's time for you to stand up to defend and protect and arise. Because when we see the fire of God, when we see the light of God burning, it calls to the fire in us. I'm just, I'm, I want you to see that these pictures are more than just like basic little facts. There's incredible beauty behind the pictures. I, I got, when I was 11 years old, I went to India and I met this woman, Halda Buntain, who was like a legend in the missions world when I grew up. And Mark and Halda Buntain, they sold everything they had in, in the late, in the 40s, Canadians. They got on a boat and they went to India, and they served the poor in India for the for their entirety of their lives. And they lived simple lives, caring for people. And when I sat there as an eleven-year-old, there was a beacon of fire in front of me that I could see. There was a fire of burning spirit in front of me, awakening in me something that was ready to go.
John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The fire of the Spirit not only purifies, but, it, but, it, but it, others can see it. Wind. I'm getting close to the end, I promise. Wind. Wind's another picture. And John 3, 5 through 8, Jesus answered, said, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to spirit, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Sometimes when I... I walk outside, and I, I've got trees in my yard, and I just like want to. I just want to see the wind. And when the leaves are on the ground and the wind is blowing, you see like you see like the the leaf, the leaf doesn't always just go in one direction. Sometimes the wind, you see like this leaf begin to animate and dance in the wind. And Jesus says, those who are born of the Spirit, they're like the wind. Years ago, Zane and I were going down with the homeless, and we, were give, we, didn't, we had recognized that we wanted to see the miracles in, in our lives, and we recognized that we hadn't seen that much. And so we were going down, giving away burgers with to pray for the homeless people. It's like, that's our deal. We have a transaction with the homeless. You get a burger, I get to pray for you. <laughs> no, wasn't, I'm kidding, it wasn't quite that. But, but that was what we, we just walked around, we carried around cheeseburgers, and we prayed for people. And we, pr- we, we drove this guy, I can't remember, one night, and we drove him somewhere and prayed for his back. And one day, we went down there, we would go at lunch, and we went down there like late at like 1.30. And we walked down this street and just as we walked, we were walking near the bridge, which is a shelter. Um, I get a call, and I'd given my number to this guy. And he calls me, and he says, I, tr- I, tr- I thought about calling you. This was like weeks later. He's like, I lost your number, and I, f- I woke up, and I found your number, and I just wanted you to know that my back is healed. And I'm like, where are you? He's like, I'm at the bridge, and I'm standing out in front of the bridge. And he comes out. To show me that he's walking and that he just, he's like, this, I just thought to call you now, a couple weeks later. Those born of the Spirit are like the wind. I didn't know why I was late to go down there. I don't know why he lost my number. But God wanted to tell me he speaks and he's moving. The last symbol I want to mention to you is not a symbol of the Spirit at all. It's a symbol of Jesus, and it's the word body. The word body. How many of you know when Jesus went to Calvary, his body was broken for me? And these these elements, let me be clear, they are not only symbols, they are more than symbols. But they are also, in addition to what they are more of, they are also symbols of that body. And 
But the body is more than just the bread. It's more than just, it's also us. It's also his body. I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. This is talking about the body. It says, just as the body, though one has many parts, just as the body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So this part, he's talking about Christ, but he's also talking about us as his body in Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were given the same one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Okay. I just want to say this. This whole 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the gifts of the spirit. It talks about how there's all these different gifts given. But he says, but you're one body. There's all these different, the Spirit is working in all these different ways, but you're one body. And I think when we think of the life of the Spirit, a lot of times we think of our own individual experiences with God. But I want to say this, that life in the Spirit, if it is anything, it is a life with God in community. It is with the body. The body is the symbol, it's the picture of Jesus in us. But the Spirit works in the body. When they awaited, in a few, seven weeks from now, we'll celebrate Pentecost. And Pentecost happened to a group of people praying together, awaiting for the outpouring of the Spirit. It didn't happen to some random Joe praying by themselves. It happened to a body. And the more and more that you want to live the beauty of the spirit life, you will must, you must live it as it is done in body. One of my favorite little random scriptures in Acts 15, I think, Maybe it's Acts 17. I don't know. It's somewhere in there. It is, they're trying to make a decision about something, and, they, and it says in the Scripture, it seemed good to us and the Spirit. It's just like, because not everything in life, God is giving you some like clarion call from heaven. Go do venture capital. That's what you're supposed to do. Like, it's not, it's, it's not like that. Like, w- most of life is lived out in it seems good to us and the Spirit. But hey, there's a part of that. It's not just it seems good to the Spirit. It seems good to us and it seems good to the Spirit. If you try to sequester your life and God to your individual self, your decision making, your your planning, your doing, your acting, your loving, if you try to do that, you will not experience the fullness of the Spirit life. It is done in the body. Period. End of story. That is the life that God has called us to. 